Welcome to Seeds, a show where we talk about purpose with inspiring people making a positive impact with their lives. We are particularly interested in social enterprises and entrepreneurs. We will listen to them reflect on their journeys and take time to dig deeper in order to better understand what really motivates their choices. Hi everyone, this is Stephen Moe. Thanks for joining me today. On this episode, we're going to be speaking with Peter Townsend, who's been the chief executive of the Canterbury Employers Chamber of Commerce for more than 20 years. And when this episode is first released, he'll be about to retire from that role. And he's going to be sharing with us a lot of insights of things that he's learned over the years. Here's an excerpt from that interview. One of, the, one of my favorite little theories, which I've learned um, over the years, and I've applied this theory, and I'll tell you it works, I call it my partial vacuum theory of management. And I think anyone who is in a leadership position, and not necessarily just a chief executive, any level of leadership inside an organization or in a community, mm. every one of us have the responsibility to draw the people we work with into new and um, testing environments. So it's like creating a partial vacuum in front of them. So you draw them into the new environment. Right. And, and mainly they might not even know they're being drawn to the new environment. But you as the leader have that responsibility. And if you keep drawing people into new environments, um, they keep expanding their potential, they keep exploring new possibilities, mm. that's the answer. Mm. It's called empowerment, but it's empowerment in an environment that is conducive to exploring potential. In the next episode, we're going to be speaking with Martin Large from the United Kingdom. And in particular, we're going to be talking about the term commonwealth and what that means. Martin is a former academic, business consultant, and the publisher of Hawthorne Press. He's also the founder of the UK Biodynamic Land Trust and a director of Stroud Commonwealth. To ensure you don't miss out, hit subscribe. And it really helps if you are willing to leave a review or rating of the show. It helps other people know what it's about. And also look for the share button somewhere on your podcasting app and send it to a friend and help to get good messages and good stories out. Now let's dive into the full interview. All right. Well, I'm joined by Peter Townsend, the Chief Executive of the Canterbury Employers Chamber of Commerce. Thank you for joining me. Pleasure, Stephen. Pleasure. Peter, I was reflecting as I was driving over to do this interview that uh, we probably first met in the sort of late 1980s, didn't we? Yes, well, I think we did. Uh, I, I employed your father, and um, he worked for us in New Zealand with the New Zealand Salmon Company. And then later on, when we purchased a joint venture, Aquacultivos, in Portamont in Chile, he was um, our man on the ground in Chile. Yeah, and I was there with him, of course. Yeah. <laughs> sure. um, yeah, I think when we first moved to Chile, I would have been 10 years old or so, maybe maybe just turning 11. And then we were there for two summers six months each and I remember you're coming to visit on you know yeah, well, checking I, up on things <laughs> I, was, I was one of the uh, two um, New Zealand directors of the joint venture company so myself and uh, Ian Farrant were the two directors and mm. we spent a lot of time traveling between New Zealand and Chile yeah and in those days it was um, a flight to to Tahiti and then a 707 line Chile 707 through Easter Island to um, Santiago right and down to Portamont so it was quite a hike yeah, yeah, it wasn't as easy as maybe it is today. Nowhere near as easy. So in a way, um, I owe the fact that I grew up in Christchurch and this became my home. 
indirectly to you because you were involved in that process of hiring my father. So I just wanted to say thank you for that. <laughs> well, no, it's a pleasure, and he's, he did a great job for us. So it was it was good. Um, yeah. it was, he'd had some experience in salmon operations in the in the United States, so mm. um, we brought him and and Rob Lawrence, another another one of your friends, yep. out to New Zealand, and they worked together here. And then Norm was in uh, Chile. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's great. So what we do on this podcast is talk about the word purpose, and I'm very keen to find out what that word means for you. Um, but in order to really unpack that and discover with a person um, what that word means, I like to start at the beginning of their life and just run through. And I know you're coming up to a transition, um, so I'm very interested in your perspective, having been in your current role for a very long time. Um, just some of your reflections on your, your past, and then um, thinking about as well where Christchurch is at present. So let's start with the very beginning. Yeah, sure. <laughs> where are you from? I, I grew up in Rotorua, and um, I was one of four children to a family um, where my father was a general practitioner in Rotorua. He had a really large general practice, and initially it was a sole practice, so he was he was the man. And um, hardly hardly knew my father when we were growing up because he was working from six o'clock in the morning until seven o'clock at night and then he'd go out all night and have babies and we used to I can distinctly remember as a young boy listening to the car racing off to the hospital um, to the annex we used to call it in Rotorua and that was dad going off to have another baby right. there are a lot of babies in Rotorua that were named Jeffrey which was my father's maiden ah, name okay. a lot of the, uh, he had a big Maori practice so uh, we had um a lot of patients that uh, probably didn't pay us much in terms of, or him much in terms of their consulting fees, but uh, at Christmas time there was a lot of koha um, <laughs> in terms of chickens and pigs and lambs and all sorts of things, sweet corn, all yeah. delivered to our house to thank the dokata, which they used to call him, not the doctor, it was the dokata. Right, wow. So it was quite a, uh, quite a childhood um, that was, I guess, quite bicultural, it sounds like. Yeah, it was. Well, I, I attended Rotorua Primary School, and then I went to another primary school because we shifted house, Glenholm, and then I attended um, Rotorua Boys High School, and I was in the minority as a mm. New Zealand Euro European. I was one of 350 pupils, and there were 400 Māori um, wow. pupils, so mm. very multicultural, uh, and, and pre, really pre-any... Um, from my age group and, and the time of, that we were in in New Zealand, very, um, pre any sort of racial distinctions, really, we just were all in it together. Mm. And I, I, I got quite surprised when when there was the, um, the sort of black power evolution in the United States and people started to become conscious in New Zealand um, that we, we were multicultural. Mm. In Rotorua, um, we were rough and tumble, but we didn't consider ourselves to be so much multicultural as just a community of different people. Mm, yeah, oh, that's good. And what were you like as a, a child? What sort of things did you enjoy doing? I was I was always um, uh, making trolleys and riding long distances on bicycles because Rotorua was predetermined to a um, wonderful place to tool around on a bike. You know, there were mm -hmm. seven lakes within 10 kilometers of the city and you could go out and ride around those. I, I, I was quite a social kid, I suppose, lots of friends. And uh, a really happy ch childhood, actually. Mm -hmm. uh, very loving parents, and mm -hmm. the little I did see of my father was, was great. My mum pretty much brought up the kids, mm -hmm. and, um, and, and how many, yeah, we had a good life. How I many got, brothers and sisters did you have? One sister mm -hmm. who, who um, 
whose claim to fame was that she set up and operated the largest Steiner school in the UK, and it was the the um, it was integrated into the main education system in the UK as the mm. largest Steiner school to be integrated. Mm. My elder brother was a doctor; he took after my father, and my son did medicine. So I'm the one that sort of missed out, if you right? Like, <laughs> deliberately, yes. And um, my um, my um, younger brother was a, uh, a mining engineer, and he spent most of his life working in a a uh, trying to clay mine up in Kirikiri. Right. Okay. So quite a mixed yeah. lot. Yeah, and it sounds like it. Fairly well spread around. Yeah. 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 Oh, that's good. And what sort of subjects did you enjoy in high school, for example? High school. High school was a difficult time for me academically because I hadn't yet learned how to learn, and mm. I, I've decided that there's a point in your life when you learn to learn, mm. and I didn't learn to learn until I got to university. So, I can distinctly recall that my headmaster in his final reference to me at Boys Hire said he has been indolent at school and would be well served to seek a useful apprenticeship. Oh. So so <laughs> I was sort of cast into the wilderness with that terrible reference, which actually created quite a challenge to me because if you needed a headmaster's reference to go to a college um, for accommodation at university, you didn't. I, I didn't get into a college because no. my headmaster's reference wasn't good enough. No. So, but it was it was quite interesting that he set that challenge up for me because I went back to a school reunion years ago and I told him I didn't think much of him and he asked me why and I said because he gave me a lousy reference and he asked me what I'd done and I told him and he said well I think I've proved my point. So it was really, and and I I, I muddled through school. I spent two years in in what was in those days six B. So it took me two years to get my university entrance. Mm. Um, I wasn't stupid. I just mm. didn't. I just didn't know how to learn, and I wasn't really interested. But mm. when I got to university, um, I did a BSc honours in zoology, and I did a postgraduate diploma in business, and I didn't miss a unit. So mm. I sort of learned how to learn. Right, and maybe that indolent phrase was a bit of motivation to to prove him wrong. I, I had a I had a point to prove. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, and where did you go to study? I went to Otago University, and the reason I went there was that there was no university in Rotorua, and in those days there was no university in Hamilton, so it was a choice between Auckland, Palmerston North, Wellington, uh, Christchurch, or, or Otago, and my brother had gone to Otago, my older brother, to do medicine. Mm-hmm. He persuaded my sister to go to Otago to do a, a Bachelor of Arts, and they both persuaded me to go down there and do science. Right. And in fact, my younger brother went down to Otago and did mineral technology, so the whole family ended up oh. uh, going through Otago um, University, which probably wasn't altogether a coincidence because of the medical, the medical side of it, but also because my father was a um, a GP and trained at Otago University. So, mm. yeah. and you'd said that you sort of consciously chosen not to go down a doctor route. Yeah. Was that something that you knew quite early on, j- just because of your father? You, yeah. you didn't want to do yeah, that. I, I deliberately did not do medical intermediate at my first year at university, mm. um, which would have precluded me from doing medicine. Mm. And the reason I did that was that I didn't want to do medicine. I'd, I'd seen the life my father had, which was a great life for him, but it was just totally preoccupied with that vocation. And in those days, medicine really was a vocation. Right. It was twenty four seven, full on. And um, I decided I didn't want to do that, so mm. I did other things. Yeah, oh, that's great. And what what are some of your highlights or your memories of that university time? And and how did you decide what you did study? Because it sounds like it was quite a unique combination of yeah, zoology well, and business. I, I studied I, I majored in zoology and botany, and uh, I did I did a whole lot of other units on the way through. I did more units than I needed for my honours degree, mm. um, because I was just interested in pursuing them. But zoology came out on top because I was always interested in animals, I was always interested in the land, and uh, I, I did my honours thesis in, on um, the pollution of a small river down in Otago that was being polluted by a woollen mill, and I was trying to work out 
what that was doing to the river and how quickly the river recovered when the woollen mill stopped uh, pouring effluent into the stream. So it was just, it was just a sort of an interest of um, basic uh, biology and basic animal and plant functions that um, has always fascinated me, actually, and I, and I really enjoyed it. Hmm. Oh, that's good. And what happened next after your degree had finished? Well, I, when I, I did my BSc Honours in Zoology because I didn't know what else to do, and I finished that, and I didn't know what to do after that. So I went back to university and spent a year doing a postgraduate diploma in business mm. as a sort of an entree into my future. Right. I finished that, and uh, I, did, I did well at that, at that, um, with that postgraduate diploma. Set off to uh, Auckland to look for a job. Got a phone call from Dunedin from one of my colleagues who... Uh, my Vasti colleagues who told me that there was a, a job opening in Dunedin in an export company and um, it was involving the exporting of fish so I turned around, went back to Dunedin walked into the office, they hadn't even started advertising the job yet um, and just said I want the job Right. and they were good enough to give it to me so that's <laughs> how I got my first job and from there on in I spent um, uh, 12 years uh, w- with a company called Wilson Neal exporting initially fish and then a whole range of products including opossum skins and venison and, and all sorts of stuff. And then um, after that floated the New Zealand Salmon Company, 1983, with mm-hmm. a, a bunch of other um, keen, reckless young men. Uh, we publicly listed the New Zealand Salmon Company, grew it up into a major uh, operation, uh, which included a tomato processing operation in Gisborne, a drum packaging plant that we were making fibre drums with, a muscle farm operation, and salmon farming operations in uh, in Canterbury and in Stewart Island, and in later on in Portamont in Chile. Mm. And how was it that you got into that? It was just a group of people that you met and said, "Let's do this." Let's yeah, it went right back to my varsity days. The the two two of the key um, promoters of the New Zealand Salmon Company were um, student friends of mine, right? And so that sort of initiated the relationship. But because I was exporting fish, and because it was salmon, mm-hmm. and because I knew a little bit about fish with my zoology degree, right. it, it all sort of made sense. It all came together. Yeah, it was a big risk for me because I was very comfortable where I was with the as, as general manager of, of uh, Wilson Neal Limited Export Division, which was a large exporting company in those days. Uh, but I decided you, you only live once, so I took the plunge and mm. um, severed my ties with Wilson Neal and, and was a founding shareholder of the New Zealand Salmon Company and ended up mm. being managing director, mm. uh, board member and chief executive of that company. Mm. And do you remember the moment when you thought, I'm going to do it, I'm going to switch here and I'm going to leave behind this general manager, as you described it, sort of a... Yep. a a, a well-known trodden path. You'd been doing that for a couple of years, it sounds yep. like. Yep. And I'm going to strike out and, and do the salmon yeah, company I, thing. Was I it? remember it distinctly because, because I was really excited about the prospects of, of salmon farming in New Zealand mm. um, because it was a... I mean, I'd been a hunter for, for most of my life. I, I was selling hunted fish and selling hunted um, venison and selling hunted opossum skins. Um, it, it, it never appealed to me that much that I was a hunter. I would much rather be a farmer. Mm-hmm. Um, salmon farming came along, which was all about taking the risk out of reproduction in salmon. So instead mm-hmm. of a salmon replacing itself by, by um, clever farming techniques, you could replace a salmon 3,000 times if you're lucky mm-hmm. with, by milking its eggs. Yeah. And so that... Um, and New Zealand actually it was really interesting because New, Ze- New Zealand was the only country in the southern hemisphere where salmon was 
um, introduced from California mm. in 1906, I think it was, uh, by a sailing ship. Mm. Uh, they brought it down. They brought the eggs down here. And, they, and it was the only country in the southern hemisphere where there's been a migratory run established for quinnet salmon, king salmon. Mm. They tried it in South Africa, failed. They tried it in Chile, failed. They tried it in um, Argentina, failed. Mm. New Zealand, for some reason, it worked. Yeah. So we were able to use that um, capability of um, homing salmon in our um, in our braided rivers to build up a salmon stock through hatchery operations by harvesting wild fish and then milking the eggs out of them and mm. um, and, and creating a, a, a large release of salmon and then later on moving those baby salmon down into Stewart Island mm. to, to farm. Mm. Yeah, and that, that moment that you made that decision to, to do this different thing, uh, just describe that. <laughs> yeah, was well, it a particular it, day or was it a lead yeah, up? No, it, was, it wasn't. I, I was being targeted by my colleagues to take the job mm. and uh, it was a pretty attractive offer. Mm. Um, but I distinctly remember talking through this with my wife and saying, well, am I gonna, are we going to stay safe or are we going to take the plunge? And right. we agreed that it would be a good idea to take the plunge and we did and I abs- have absolutely no regrets. I mean, it, it changed my life completely and set me on a completely different pathway really and mm. with different people and different experiences in different countries mm. and it was um it was yeah it was pretty incredible mm. yeah because it's around that time 1983 was the year that uh my family moved to new zealand the first time to work mm. on or my dad <laughs> not me to work on the waitaki river um in this sort of salmon you know the new salmon industry um so then it must have been yeah about 86 87 that you would have Yep. Met up with him. Yep, and we were working the Rakaia River, so he, right. he, he was ended up in the Rakaia. But his main occupation was to um, set up our salmon farming operations, which was sea yep. cage, and the ocean ranging operation at Tempern, where, where we mm. raised, at one stage, we were raising six million smolt and releasing them out to sea mm. with the hope of getting a 3% return. Wow. Um, the first year we got about a 3% return. It looked wonderful mm. because we were literally taking the risk out of reproduction. But Stephen, what it taught us all is that nature has a funny way of balancing things out. So we were releasing all these fish into the environment. Right. And the barracuda and the shags and the seals and the fishermen all found out. So <laughs> it only took two or three years before um, those farmed salmon that were released to sea to grow at sea and then in theory come back to the hatchery. Mm. Um, they were being predated. Mm. So um, uh, um, that was a big lesson in my life. Yeah. Nature levels. Nature has out. a way of balancing things. The amazing thing as well is the numbers that you're saying, you know, six million salmon mm. to release that many, like the, the quantities or the number of eggs from a single salmon. Like it, there was it's a vast l- quantities, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, there, there was a large operation and it was a high risk large operation, but it it was um, it was well worth a shot. Yeah. And of course that hatchery still exists today as a hatchery that supplies the current salmon farming industry. Mm. They don't really salmon at sea anymore, they just, um, they just harvest this farm salmon and and, and grow them in the hatchery mm. uh, to or grow a proportion of them in the hatchery so they can harvest the eggs and uh, keep mm. the salmon farming industry going. Mm. And so then just describe mid-80s, you're looking, I guess, around the world at opportunities and something comes up in Chile. How did that come about? That came out about through your father who had been in Chile, I think he was in the Peace Corps, mm. and he he had got to know Alfonso Moana Rodriguez, mm. who was a, um, a actually a scientist that was interested in... in um, salmon farming and uh, Norman and, and Alfonso got together and Alfonso had the concessions to farm salmon down in Portamont. Norm came to us and said, well, you've got some money. Why don't you put your money in? 
He's got the concessions to farm salmon. You can provide the, the capital. Mm. Uh, we'll form a 50-50 joint venture and we'll go for it. And we mm. did. Yeah. And, that, and that's how it started. So, mm. And the other reason it started was that salmon farming in New Zealand was always difficult. The species we were dealing with, the king salmon, was a difficult fish to raise, very sensitive. Um, it was the only species we had in New Zealand of any significance. And we weren't allowed to bring any more in because mm. of biosecurity at risks, which is a, a good thing. Um, Chile had a range of salmon species, coho, Atlantic salmon, mm. and also trout. We farmed a lot of trout in Chile, and it also is the second largest world's producer of fish meal, which is the staple diet of farmed fish. Mm. So it had all the right ingredients. In fact, it was the best best place to farm salmon in the world for some time yeah. until they started overloading their farming systems, and yeah. then they got into trouble. Right, yeah. By well, that time, we'd gone. Right, so the timing worked out well. <laughs> and just in terms of what happened next in Canterbury Employer Chamber of Commerce, were there some other things that you did in between those roles? Yeah, well, we, we with the New Zealand Salmon Company, um, we got caught up in Cyclone Bola, which was a terrible cyclone that occurred in Gisborne, and we lost about $9 million worth of tomatoes. We were growing mm. 70,000 tonnes of tomatoes at the time wow. and, and turning it into aseptic tomato paste, to, all to be exported. And... Um, uh, where the cyclone bowler caught, caught us right at harvest time, so all the tomatoes were mm. drowned, uh, and the paddocks were, it was so muddy you couldn't get into them. The same year, we also had an, uh, what they call an algal bloom in our farm salmon operation down at Stewart Island. Mm-hmm. cost another $5 million. So in one year, we had $14 million worth of disaster. And the directors took a deliberate decision to downsize the company and say, well, we're too exposed climatically. Right. Uh, we can't afford another hit like this. So we dismantled the company. Mm. And so we spent two years, two and a half years dismantling the company, sold off all the assets. The staff went with the assets by and large. I think I was one of three redundancies in the whole in the whole scheme of things. We mm. were employing a couple of hundred people. Um, and, and so they went off into different ownership models. And it was, a, it was the right thing to do. And um, I mean, one of the things that really pleases me now is that a lot of the people that worked for us in those days have now reached the peak of their careers and they're in, invariably doing well, doing really mm. well. So they were bedded down and, and, and um, served their apprenticeship in the New Zealand Salmon Company and they've gone off to do other things. Yeah, that must be, it must be nice to look back decades ago and, and recognise those paths of people who, Absolutely. who you touched there a little bit and then, ooh, they went off here and there. Absolutely. And we recently had a reunion of the um, team of the New Zealand Salmon Company and mm. um, that went, you know, took us right back to 1986. And, right. and um, it was fantastic to see so many people from all over the place coming back to the reunion and, and mm. All of them, invariably, all of them have done really well. Yeah. So it was, very, I feel very proud about that. Yeah, that's very satisfying. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and in terms of after that, is that yep. when you got involved with Canterbury Employees yeah, Chamber no, of no, Commerce? It was an interim step. I, we shifted the head office of New Zealand Salmon from Dunedin to Christchurch in 1989 because we were doing so much international travel, it was just untenable to stay in Dunedin. It was just too difficult. Mm-hmm. And um, and we had a bigger commercial centre here. Mm-hmm. So, so we shifted to, to, in 1989, and then the... New Zealand Salmon Company was dismantled 1990 to 1992. Mm-hmm. Uh, I joined the Canterbury Development Corporation, which is the city can- Christchurch City Council's local economic development agency in 92, mm. when it was just formed. Okay. So uh, we established that and got that up and running. And then I moved from the Canterbury Development Corporation to the Canterbury Employers Chamber of Commerce in 1996 and been right. here ever since. Yeah, wow. And what was, what was the chamber like when you joined? The chamber was small. It was. It had a, a fragile balance sheet. It was a bit crusty, a bit old-fashioned, but backward-looking. Mm. Um, I was deliberately employed to give it a rev up and to move it into 
uh, the, the, the time zone it belonged in, mm. uh, not yesterday. And uh, and I've spent a long time doing that, and it's been very rewarding. It's uh, uh, now a um, completely debt-free uh, membership-based organisation, which has a beautiful new building, which is also debt-free. Yep, and which we're uh, sitting in right now. Yeah, it is lovely. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, um, it's a very good team of 30 staff. We've got 3,000 members now. Uh, our, our tentacles spread to Timaru across the West Coast and up to Marlborough. Mm. And uh, we've spent a lot of time recently, on, on obviously, on uh, post-earthquake activity and in Kaikoura, uh, dealing with the post-earthquake fallout up there. Mm. But... That really, I think the chamber found its feet in the late 90s because it focused in on three fundamental things. And one was to enhance business capability. The other one was to make it easier to do business. In other words, work on the environment that business operates in. And the other, the third one was to celebrate new business activity and support new business growth. So you put all that together, you had a really good tight package. Mm. And those three things, did you know what they were when you first arrived or has that been a looking, reflecting back, that's I, what sticks I, out to you? I was pretty clear on what was yeah. required. Um, we, we now have a couple more. Mm. Um, one of them is the interdependency between what happens in the city and what happens in our region. And the other one is um, going much more into the interdependency between sustainable, profitable business and a healthy community. So we're working really hard in the chamber on maximising our role in the community as well as our role to support our members so that our members can operate in a good environment and we have a good environment uh, uh, because of our members. So Mm. that interdependency really plays out. Yeah. I'm quite keen because some of the listeners don't live in Christchurch or may not have seen what what you're doing um, but may be intrigued by the the idea of a Chamber of Commerce that's actually active and out in the community. Mm. Can you describe a little bit more about some of the activities that you run and you know, we're sitting next to this um, room where you have conference facilities and things yep. like that. Yep. Maybe just a high-level yep. well, overview let's, let's, of that let's, type of thing. Let's split that up into two pieces. The, the first is what we do for our members, mm-hmm. and and uh, we run over 350 separate events a year, training and development programs or luncheons or networking functions. So mm-hmm. every day there's something going on, yeah. um, and and we're pretty active on that front. We, we're, we're a pretty active uh, on our social media front. We have an a, um, extremely comprehensive website. We operate with stakeholders right across the community to to ensure that they are working in the interests of our members. So that, that that's that's sort of basically what the chamber does, and we're mm. owned by our members. I mean, we're an incorporated society, so they, they mm. own us. Mm. Um, but outside that, we, we also, and I have actively encouraged from the day I arrived here, we're also involved in the much wider community. For example, we have a representative on the Salvation Army Advisory Board. We strongly support the Family Help Trust, which looks after dysfunctional families that have kids from zero to five that need some help. Mm. Uh, I've been involved in a lot in uh, looking after disadvantaged youth and, and kids that get into trouble and how we can put them back on track. We've worked closely with the police and, and work out how we can make this society a safer place and a better place. Uh, we work with the city council on a whole lot of community-based initiatives. I'm on the board of Pegasus Health, which looks after primary care in the community mm. because we're encouraging a healthy community. Yeah. So we have, we've actively positioned ourselves not just to look after our members but to be involved in the wider community to improve community outcomes so that it can be better for our business. For mm. example... We know that there are about 60 families, extended families in Christchurch that cause 80% of the violent crime in our city. What do we have to do as a membership-based organisation that is supportive of business success in Canterbury, what do we have to do in terms of sorting out the problems those dysfunctional families have to stop 
80% of our violent crime. And if we did, what would Christchurch look like? I mean, it would be a completely different city. And that, mm. those figures are the same right across New Zealand. It's not unique to Christchurch. I mean, if you go to Gisborne, there are 12 families that cause a huge, hugely disproportionate amount of the bedlam in, mm. in Gisborne. They know mm. they are. Mm. Um, so mm. I've lived a long time with the philosophy of how much, how much effort does it really take to, to take an intergenerational position to sort out some of that dysfunctionality? Mm. And what would the outcomes look like? So that's been a deliberate positioning for the Chamber of Commerce mm. and, and something that I'm personally quite proud of. And so what is that? What is the practical outcome of some of those thoughts? Well, we, we um, in various interventions, we can, we, because we're not directly involved as a chamber, it's usually the individuals that mm. will go onto a board or go into some other organisation to give them support and some help and some governance mm. guidance or leadership or whatever it might be. Yep. But we can demonstrably prove that those organisations, with our assistance, are making a measurable difference in the city, mm. whether that's ensuring that young zero to five-year-old kids have have external support when their families are in trouble to make sure that they don't fall off the rails when they get older, or mm. whether it's a kid that's converted 600 cars um, and is probably the world's best at getting into a car, um, putting his extraordinary talents into a much more productive and mm. and, and not illegal pastime. So, right. so <laughs> it, it covers that whole spectrum. Yeah. yeah. We've, also, we've also spent a bit of time working with, um, with prisons and, and with how we can better um, get better outcomes in the prison system and how we can get prisoners after prison back into the workforce. Mm. So we work with existing entities to assist them in, in that mission because that's another um, hotbed of, of, uh, of dysfunctionality where people come out of prison having done their time and they fall back into the ways that mm. they were um, before they went to prison or even worse, they are trained in prison to be a, a, mm. a recidivist criminal. Mm. So we mm. try to break those cycles. It's mm. not it's not a main part of what we do, but it's a significant part of what we do. It's, mm. And it's all about getting better outcomes for mm. this community. Mm. Oh, that's great. It's really helpful to understand that sort of bigger picture as mm. well, I think, because, um, yeah, people might not know about some of those things. So. Oh, I don't think they do. I think yeah. most people would perceive the Chamber of Commerce as being a right-wing um, uh, business organisation that's hard-nosed and that is only intent on ensuring that all its members maximise their profits and is probably governed by by waistcoated gentlemen with fob watches who <laughs> sit in a boardroom and drink gin, drink gin. I mean, we are nothing like that. <laughs> That's we're not the just normal thing. completely <laughs> the opposite. We're, yep. we're, we're young, we're, we're aggressive, we're community-focused, and we want good outcomes for our entire community, mm. not just our members. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's good. And just thinking through, obviously Christchurch had a significant significant events a couple of years ago with the earthquakes. What's your take on that now, looking back, and any thoughts on the earthquakes? Oh, a lot of thoughts on the earthquakes, a, a lot. I, I think looking back on it from where we are now, um, tragedy aside, and you know we lost 150 pe- 153 people, and there were 1,100 commercial buildings destroyed in our central city, and we lost oh, seriously damaged 25,000 houses. I mean, the, the the disaster was of a of a size that is very hard to comprehend, even for me, even now. But mm. what has come out of that is that a a myopic, conservative, very white, inward-looking city called Christchurch has changed really significantly and that it's become forward-looking, it's become multicultural, it's become much more entrepreneurial, it's become much more adventurous and and it's quite, 
quite marked the shift that has gone on in the city. Mm. I always remember a quote from a guy called Dutch Leonard, who's the professor of public affairs from Harvard University, and he said that as you recreate Christchurch, you must recreate it to ride the great tailwinds of our time, not the tailwinds of yesterday. And to be fair, Christchurch was a city that was riding the tailwinds of yesterday. The earthquake have given it, the earthquakes have given it the opportunity to ride the great tailwinds of our time, mm. and it is. Mm. Mm. I think you go further than that. Mm-hmm. I, I personally believe that the earthquakes have given us the opportunity to position Christchurch as a city of choice, as a city where people come and choose to live, not where they have to live or where they've always lived or where their work is. Mm. More and more people can choose to live wherever they want to live. Mm. And, and I am starting to see now people singling out Christchurch as a place where they want to live. Why? Because we've got a good health system, because we've got a good education system, because we're geographically beautifully positioned, because we're part of the mo- one of the most beautiful islands in the world, mm. because we've got a 24-7 airport, because we've got a very good, highly functioning seaport, um, and because we've got a new city, and because we're building a new city, and, mm. and um, people are excited about what's on offer here. So I think you're going to find in the future that Christchurch will be recognised as a place where people choose to live. And already I'm starting to see that. I'm starting to get visits from people who say, well, I'm living in Auckland. Um, I, I, I love Auckland, but I've got to travel an hour and a half every day and I'm having trouble getting my kids to school in reasonable time and it's costing me a fortune to, to live up there and my house is worth $2 million and <laughs> I can buy a similar sort of house in Christchurch for 800000 so I'm coming south. Mm. And we welcome that because we, we need growth. Um, one of, the other, one of the other outcomes of the rebuild of the city has been what I describe as bounce. And we're in a period of bounce right now in that we have over-accommodated hospitality offerings in the city. We've over-accommodated office space. We're over-accommodated in housing stock. We're, we're, um, we're in a situation where we'll be over-accommodated in hotels by the end of 2020. Mm. So, and that's perfectly natural because that's what you get when you rebuild a city en masse. I mean, you're never going to land on the head of a pin. And, but, but the solution to that, that over-accommodation, the, the bounce as I describe it, is going to be growth. So sustainable growth, bringing new people in uh, to a to a city that historically was aging rapidly, mm. that wasn't growing as fast as it needed to grow to sustain its its, its population into the future. We now have the opportunity to turn that on its head, mm. and I think we will. Mm. Well, obviously, I agree with you because we we made the decision. We were living in Sydney, and we made the choice to come back to Christchurch less than two years ago. Mm. It feels like longer, but yeah. <laughs> it hasn't been that long. But it was for many of the things that the you've said: choice, yeah. the life choice and balance and the beauty of New Zealand. Yeah. You know, you just can't get over. The, the, other, the other thing that I, I always reflect on with Christchurch is that I, I used to say before the earthquakes, you could choose where you want to live by where you would want to be when disaster strikes. And it became an extremely poignant comment because we had a disaster that struck here. Mm. Uh, and, and the community of Christchurch, the way the people responded, was really quite extraordinary. Mm. I mean, I, I described that as a period when we picked up each other's bricks and we picked up each other's books and we got on with each other mm. uh, in a way that had never happened before. And I don't think there are, there's, and I, I grew up in Rotorua, I spent years in Dunedin, I've traveled around in um, Ze- all of New Zealand. I don't think there was any other community in New Zealand that would have responded the way Christchurch responded. Mm-hmm. It's quite unique. Mm-hmm. People have an incredible sense of ownership of this community. We're not called one-eyed Cantabrians for nothing. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's really good. 
And I just want to turn now, just reflecting about your position at the moment, because something's about to change in about two weeks, we were mm-hmm. talking about, right? Yeah. <laughs> and that you'll, you'll be leaving the chamber. Yeah. Um, but just before we talk about that, just for you personally, looking back and reflecting on your career, um, particularly in your role here, what are some of the things that strike you or, or stand out for you? I think the single biggest thing, and we could talk about that for hours, but the single biggest thing is that I, I believe that most of us go through life and we never ever scratch the surface, of, we only scratch the surface of our potential. We never dig into our full potential. So I've tried to live my life on the basis that you're only getting one shot at it, you might as well go for it mm-hmm. and, and uh, go as fast and as hard as you can and have, have, have as much fun and, and do as many things as you can. And, and I, sort of, I sort of describe that as when I get to the end of my career, I have two choices. I can say, was that it? Or I can say, wow, what a ride. And I honestly believe that more of us need to be in a position where we say, wow, what a ride. And we've really, we've really tested ourselves. We've really explored our potential. And I've tried to do that in my life. Um, I personally believe that's one of the reasons why New Zealand productivity is so low, that we have too many people that get to the end of their career and say, was that it? Mm-hmm. Not wow, what a ride! Right. <laughs> and if we had a few more wow, what a riders, uh, we would have a much more sustainably productive um, community and economy. Mm. And so, so that would be the single biggest thing for me. I, I mean, I've had a buzz. I, I'd do it all over again to, yeah. at the drop of a pin, and and um, just exploring new th- new things to do all the time. I mean, one of the, I, I suppose, the second biggest thing that I've had in my life is that I've had the good fortune to be with the Canterbury Employers Chamber of Commerce for twenty one and a half years, which sounds like forever. <laughs> but I've always had the ability to hold external directorships. So while I've had that stable uh, base positioning of mm. my chief executive of the Chamber of Commerce, I've had five or six external directorships that I've that have come and gone over over the years and, mm. and continued on with new directorships. And that has kept me fresh and it's kept me going and it's kept me exploring new new um, uh, um Areas that that I, I never would have been involved in. I mean, we mentioned earlier on that my father was a doctor and mm. my brother's a doctor and my son's a doctor. Well, it turns out that I'm a director of Pegasus Health, which looks after mo- most of the primary care right. in in Canterbury in Christchurch. Mm. And I'm um, I'm a non medical person, and I'm on the board because I'm a non medical person. Oh, but there I'm you dealing go. With doctors, because yeah. most of them on the board are doctors. So <laughs> it's a really interesting the way things go around. But yeah. but I just I, I've I've learned to love the. Um, Love the health sector, um, not for the reasons you might suspect, but for the reasons because it's very, very complex. It's multi-layered. It's very political. Mm. It's it's an amazing um, sector to be involved in at a governance level because you're never quite sure what's going to happen next. But you know one thing: it's going to be complex. Right. And so uh, I I've really enjoyed that. Yeah, and it's kind of an echo or a, a circle with your own father and your family that yeah, that, that it's medical side. Isn't it? Yeah, it is. And, yeah. and um, I mean, my wife was a nurse, and mm. and her father was the Director General of Health. So I'm mm. absolutely surrounded by by health professionals and health medicos, but but I'm now have, have done Now you're the, part of it. Now I'm part of it, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> against my better judgment. Probably. Well, there you go. Yeah. And just that, I love the way you phrased it, wow, what a ride. You know, how do we encourage people to, to take on that, that attitude from an early age? Well, I, I, one, of the, one of my favorite little theories, which I've learned um, over the years, and I've applied this theory, and I'll tell you it works, I call it my partial vacuum theory of management. And I think anyone who is in a leadership position, and not necessarily just a chief executive, any level of leadership inside an organisation or in a community, mm. every one of us have the responsibility to draw the people we work with into new and um, 
testing environments. So it's like creating a partial vacuum in front of them. So you draw them into the new environment. Right. And and mainly they might not even know they're being drawn to the new environment. But you as the leader have that responsibility. And if you keep drawing people into new environments, um, they keep expanding their potential, they keep exploring new possibilities, mm. that's the answer. Mm. It's called empowerment. But it's empowerment in an environment that is conducive to exploring potential. Mm. You can be empowered in a boxed up environment you're not going anywhere you're empowered in an environment where you're free where you're drawn into new activities and and new possibilities and new challenges that's when you start to see the potential and i can i can promise you i've worked with people who never ever understood the potential they've had mm. but because they've been subject to my partial vacuum theory of management right they've done some amazingly wonderful things yeah and it's about i guess the word would be opportunity as well right like giving Drawing people the opportunities, opportunities. absolutely yeah. Yeah. But it's it's subtle and it's um, continuous mm. it, it, because I, I really do think that, that – um, I mean, I think I've explored probably 10% of my potential. Right. And I and I think I've done okay. Yeah. So <laughs> what about it? You know, where's all the rest? Where, yeah. where we, where, how do we unleash the stuff? And a big part of it is this partial vacuum theory, I'm yeah. sure. Yeah. Oh, that's great. Are there any other things that you've learned over the years? I mean, 21 years, 21 and a half years – yeah, I, I, I've learned a lot. I, I mean, the most fundamental lesson I've learned in life is that um, you can think you're doing okay, but you're only doing doing as well as the people around you. And you have to always surround yourself with good people. And you have to always um, let them do what uh, they want to do to achieve your common objectives. Autocracy has no, no it's not a word I use, um, a hierarchy I do not use. Um, surrounding myself with good people and all of us working towards a common objective is a fundamentally important part of my life. Mm, which fits well with the empowering idea Absolutely. and opportunities Absolutely. And, and letting them run with it. Yep. Yeah. And I think you're going to find as we go into the future um, that happens more and more and more because technology and changing work environments and changing um, philosophical um, determinations by people are all predetermining that we go into a much freer, mm. um, looser, empowering environment. But mm. it's still going to take people to encourage other people in that environment mm. to get the right results. Mm. I think it's powerful as well that that leaders would be able to speak into the lives of people that they're coming into contact with and actually name what the person is good at. Yep. Because sometimes as an individual, you're not even aware that you might have potential as a good public speaker or right. at a, that, wow, you're really good at researching or you're good at writing, mm -hmm. you know, something like that. Yep. Um, and, and part of that is coming back to the partial vacuum theory, throwing people in the, in the deep end and right. letting them swim and yep. they'll decide which stroke they're going to swim with, whether yes. it's backstroke or breaststroke. <laughs> um, and um, you, your job is to haul them out if they're drowning, but to let them go otherwise. Yeah. And they'll, they'll learn all right. They'll learn where their strengths are. Yeah. And it's, it's, I mean, I've had a lot of feedback from people that I've talked to about this whole um, empower, empowerment um, issue, and it's invariably very positive. People mm. have gone away and thought about it and come back and said, you're right, you know, you're right. Mm. This is simple. Mm. And it's something that y you could do in any context, couldn't you? Yes. You don't have to be the CEO of the company. Right. You could have a team or even one person that you're dealing with and maybe be practicing some of these things that we're talking about. Because if everybody yeah, yeah. did that, then all of a sudden you probably would get more of those, wow, that yeah, was that absolutely. was quite a ride. I mean, you can do it on the sports field. Yeah. You can do it in your family. Mm. It doesn't have to be work. Yeah. yeah. It's, a, it's, a, it's just a fundamental understanding that if you put people into the right environment, um, you will unleash potential that you never knew existed. Mm. Mm. That's really good.
And just coming back to the word purpose, which is one of the things we talk about on this podcast, what is it meant for you or what does it mean for you? For me personally, it's, me- it's meant um, that I-, I, want to, I want to leave this place in a better condition than we found it, that there's a lot of stuff that we can do to improve outcomes in the community that are well beyond just running businesses. Um, that from a family perspective, I, I wanted to support my kids and, and my family to do whatever they chose to do and be supportive of it. So that would be a sort of a benign purpose, but a really powerful purpose. Mm. And um, for this organisation, I guess my purpose has been to to look at everything we do through the eyes of our members and to provide them with the sort of support they need to do really special things in this community. Mm. And that's not just about making money. Mm. Mm. Yeah, it's helping people see a bigger vision than um, yeah. than just dollars. Yeah, and 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 driving um, driving their organisations and their enterprises in a way that that, um, that that does good, not not just makes money, does good. And and you're seeing more and more of that now. Mm. I mean, I, I'm mm. working every day with businesses that are making very conscious decisions about doing good things mm. well. Is that a shift that you've? you've noticed recently like, and and when would it have started oh, do you think it's a big it? shift uh, I, I mean when I first I can remember very distinctly 20 years ago when mm. I first started with the Chamber of Commerce I was on the board of the New Zealand Employers Federation and mm. I suggested to the board of the New Zealand Employers Federation that they should put the word insert the word sustainability into their mission statement and I was just about thrown out of the room right because I was branded as being wildly green you know why would ever you put that into a mission statement yeah well now it's <laughs> and so you've seen a huge shift and over the years and, mm. I, and I, we're still only at the beginning of it mm. um, but I think more and more you're going to see um, companies operating with 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 much more integrity than might have been the case in the past mm. and and the whole thing about integrity is that it requires justification so a company that's operating with integrity has to justify its environmental impact it has to justify the way it treats its people it has to justify the way it treats its products particularly mm. if they're live products mm. it has to have um, a, a, a very keen eye on its traceability and its data collection and it has to operate um, in a in a socially, culturally, environmentally, and financially sustainable way. Mm. And that's so obvious; it's hardly worth saying. But mm. it's only becoming now clearly understood. Mm. But the encouraging thing, I think, is that not only is the current leadership of companies starting to tweak to this, like we need to build this in, but the next generations that are coming up, I'm sure you're seeing as well. You know, yep. that people are graduating and they're coming out, and yep. they're that that there's other motives beyond. Getting a company car and a salary. Yes, it's quite marked, and and um, you know, I've got four boys, and they're all doing different things, but they're all driven um, off off a much wider uh, purpose than than my generation. There's mm. no doubt about that. Mm. So that's almost a generational shift that's happened, isn't it? I, I think it is, and yeah. I think that's driven by um, a better understanding of what's going on. Mm. I mean, I. I am so old that I can remember when the word ecology was invented. Right. <laughs> so, you know, and now uh, the whole ecological impact, the, the whole ecosystem, the interdependency of what's going on with, with our farming operations and our water and our atmosphere and our soils becoming clear to everybody. Mm. In my day, that was one of the world's darker secrets. Right. Um, no one had any idea because they simply didn't understand. Yeah. And we all thought that our resources were finite. We we all thought that there was no end to how much coal we could burn or how much fuel we could consume or how much water we could use and mm-hmm. how much how many trees we could burn down. I mean, 
it was just part of life. Mm. Change, the change has been dramatic. Mm. Yeah. And just reflecting, thinking about what you know now and going back in time, what would you say to yourself um, when you were just finishing that you'd done zoology and then you did your one-year business studies? Are there any things that you wish that you'd known back then? Yeah, I, I, um, I definitely, if I could go back and do it all over again, I would definitely be um, much more of a sustainable farmer than a one-way street hunter because that's where I started. And I often shudder about the way we treated natural resources in those days. I mean, for example, orange ruffy was discovered when I was in the fishing industry. And the orange ruffy beds were plundered. And we sold that orange ruffy all over the world. Um, It was a terrible thing to do with hindsight because those fish were probably 80 years old. Mm. But we had no perception of that. Mm. Um, So I would do that. I would do that differently. I would do do everything I've done, but I would do it through a lens of – um, treating the, treating the world and its resources with more respect. Mm, mm. Oh, that's good. Yeah, it, it's important lessons, isn't it, for mm. the for the next generation? And as we've well. got the capability to do it. Yeah. And and technology is going to be the answer to mm. treating the world with yeah. more respect. Yeah. Well, it sounds like you've stayed involved in a number of different things while you've had your role here. Um, what are your plans for the future? I, I finish up here on November the 30th. I will carry on. I've got five external directorships. I'll carry on with those. I'll probably pick up one or two more. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, my cheap shot in terms of what I'll do after I finish here is, is certainly pay attention to those governance roles. But I'll stay in Christchurch till I get sick of it. Mm-hmm. Then I'll amble off to Wanaka where I've got a house and I'll mm-hmm. stay there till I get sick of it. And then I'll come back to Christchurch till I get sick of it. Right. <laughs> so it'll be under my terms yeah. because for the first time in 45 years, I won't have a boss. Mm-hmm. Well, that must, the December 1st will be a, a special day for you then. Indeed. Yeah. Uh, well, it's been a pleasure to have you on the podcast. I really appreciate your time. Good. <laughs> Thanks, Stephen. I certainly enjoyed listening to Peter reflect on his journey and the things that he's learned in his role with the Chamber. Over the years, Peter has been a constant positive voice, and I really appreciate him and the role that he's played in Christchurch, particularly after the earthquakes. Thank you, Peter. Now, in the next episode, we're going to be speaking with Martin Large, whose most recent book is called Commonwealth, but he uses that word in ways that you or I probably wouldn't. And in particular, we talk a lot about community land trusts and ownership of land. Here's an excerpt from the interview with Martin. So when I meet somebody, I I often ask, what's their question? Right. And that's, I think, akin to what you mean by by what's what's their purpose. Mm -hmm. You know, what's their question? And where's their question leading them? Mm. Yeah. And I guess it's uh, the older I get, you know, as an elder, I get more and more interested in that. Mm. So do you view your role now as helping people to understand what their questions are? A, a bit, if, if, if there's space mm. and, and if, if that's what they want. Mm. That interview with Martin, we go into a lot of different areas that I hadn't previously thought about, and I'm sure you're going to enjoy it as well. Until next time.